0: Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28
1: on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We're joined today by Gary Beach. Gary currently
0: starring on Broadway as Al Ban, the... Uh, the central character, I guess you would say, of La Cage O'Fall, Jerry Herman, and Harvey Fierstein's uh, wonderful revival here on Broadway. Previously, you saw Gary and the Producers, and uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Gary, welcome to Downstage Center. Thanks, John. This is probably kind of fun for you being uh, in the spotlight, literally a good deal of the show as Alban.
2: It's a workout like I've never had before in my life. Uh, it's The show is wonderful, and uh, it has, it's filled with incredible characters, Alban being one of them. Of course, he's uh, he's the star of the uh, store downstairs which happens to be a drag club and uh, he goes under the name of Zaza when he's working but basically when he's upstairs in the apartment with uh, Georges and their son uh, Jean-Michel he lives his life sort of as a, a woman.
0: Well, as I gather from watching the play, he is a man, but he believes that he's actually a woman and even a mother, Well, as yes, opposed he, he, to just a man pretending to be a woman.
2: Exactly. That's how he treats himself. It's, uh, he, he treats himself as uh, Jean-Michel's mother, uh, as Georges' wife, and I might add, through all of this, this story is uh, mainly about family values. Well, it, it, say- it, in an
0: era of red states and blue states, right. it is a show about family values.
2: Well, you know... That's, yeah, isn't that amazing? And, <laughs> yeah. like, uh, it was the first night, the second night uh, previews, uh, Barbara Walters was there. Uh-huh. And she came back to the dressing room and she said, I can't believe this. She said, I'd forgotten how absolutely wonderful and sweet this show is. And it's a show that should be seen by absolutely everyone for different reasons. <laughs> and it's worth
1: noting that this story goes back, at this point, almost 30 years to a French play. That's right. Which was then adapted as ultimately a series of films because Mm -hmm. these characters were so hugely popular. And then the musical version was I believe 1983 82,
2: uh, 83 uh, exactly and then came uh, the non-musical version film of The Birdcage which I think most people know Right, but the, of course right. that original film that came out when was that it was the uh, 77 or so yeah. uh, it was tremendously successful up to its time the most successful foreign film of all time considering that it was a French film that's right a lot of people don't go to see foreign movies yes <laughs> and uh, this one was released when I first saw it with subtitles mm-hmm. it later got uh, the voice over bit, but uh, it was mostly seen as a French film with subtitles, and it was hugely successful.
0: Now, you saw the film. Did you ever see the original La Cage or Folles Broadway
2: production back oh, yes. in the 80s? Well, here, you'll like this. <laughs> I was there the very night before it opened at the final preview uh-huh. to see uh, and, of course, it was at the Palace Theatre, a theatre I played many years later with Beauty and the Beast, and it had so much excitement around it. I had known George Hearn for many years Who up to the Who played Albin, the original. was Albin, the original. Uh, and uh, George was actually in the very first Broadway show I ever did. We were both replacements. Which was? We were both replacements in the original production of 1776. Oh, wow. Which character? Well, George was – I'm calling him George like we're doing (laughs) – George. George Hearn. George Hearn uh, played Dickinson, Uh the Tory. Uh And I started out as the courier and moved on to Edward Rutledge, Uh, the South Carolina Firebrand. It was many years ago. Promoted
0: from Courier to Firebrand. (laughs) (laughs) That's right.
2: And uh, so I've known George that long. So it was so exciting though. I remember when the show was out of town in Boston, the original production back in the early 80s. The excitement surrounding it coming into town was huge, very much like the producers. I mean everyone wanted to see it. So I, I got there as soon as I could and I wasn't disappointed a bit.
0: Did you see it in Boston?
2: No. No, no I, but I heard about it. You know, the, well, a sh- well, When a show is that big and that exciting, word seeps back into New York City from mm-hmm. out of town. You know.
0: Well, speaking about that Boston run, the Boston triad, Jerry Herman was on this program a couple months ago. And he was talking about how he and Harvey Fierstein, who wrote the book, went to Boston to see the triads to obviously be there to work on the show. And the first performance, they were very, very nervous being in what they considered a conservative town back in 1982, 83. Hello. And wondering <laughs> – are we crazy? <laughs> we're, we're we're opening the show in Boston. What are we doing? And Jerry told the story of a, a couple. I'm gathering middle aged maybe a little bit older than that, who looked to be very kind of Boston provincial and you know nose up type thing. Mm-hmm. And during the I am what I am number, they started holding hands, and he just realized how wonderful the show was to them. It speaks as, to everyone. Yeah. it was speaking to them and they were recalling things and Song on the Stand, recalling mm-hmm. their romance earlier. And he knew at that point the show was going to make
2: it. Yeah.
1: So in light of that, I was reading an interview with you where you talked about it was a rough road finding the character, yet this is a character you've seen and known for years. What
2: was the challenge for you coming into this role? The challenge was for me to find my Alban. I, um I'm an openly gay actor. I have been. Most of my adult life. Uh, so that wasn't a problem. But I did find it peculiar that when, when you live uh, – when you grow up in Alexandria, Virginia and go to school in North Carolina and come to New York in the early 70s to try to make a mark in the theater, uh, you spend a good deal of time repressing that side of yourself. You did. The times were different. You didn't stand – you wouldn't go on a radio show and say, hi, I'm gay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just wouldn't. And uh, now – we can some people may not accept it, but the vast majority of people say "And mm-hmm. what else Well, <laughs> yeah, sure so, yeah so but but to, to locate that feminine side i 'm not i 'm not a particularly effeminate person, but I, I of course have have uh, feelings, and I had to find those feelings and mind those feelings as rather than as a father, as a mother, rather than as a husband, as a wife and uh, as as the hostess of a house rather than the host, but to find those and make them my own, and hopefully interesting for the audience was the hard thing that I had to do well, how, how did you do that? I worked very hard i uh, at one point i was I was alone in my living room, and i just i was I, I was beside myself. I, I start crying, Jag. Mm. I, was, I, I had found this person inside me that I had never touched before. And uh, it's a joy for me to go to the theater eight times a week and find this person again. Every single night, I must tell you that by the end of the show, I'm not tired. Mm. I'm totally revitalized.
0: Are you discovering different things each performance? Oh, absolutely. Deeping, digging absolutely. deeper into the character?
2: And working with uh, Daniel. Is is a joy because he's a magnificent actor. Uh, We've known each other for 30 years Hmm. and never worked together before. Hmm. Uh, But uh, he's been a a wonderful help and uh, has our whole creative staff. The cast has been wonderful. But for me to find it one of the great helps was William Ivy Long. He uh, is the costume designer and Paul Huntley, the wig designer because we worked together, the three of us, very, very closely from the beginning, finding what what kind of style I would look good in, what kind of hairstyle, what hair color, that as a woman I would look good at. Mm-hmm. So it was it was an exciting different trip that I've never taken before.
1: In in various interviews that I've seen given uh, by Jerry, by Harvey Fierstein, who who of course wrote the book, there was discussion about the fact that this production has an openly gay man playing a gay character, whereas 20 years ago there was even... Some concern that that the leads were going out of their way to point out to people in interviews and all that they weren't. And do you think that's affected the feel of the show, the character of the show? I think
2: it has. I would go out on a limb and say 21 years ago, it was almost a necessity for uh, the actors playing Alban and George to be straight men, well-known straight men.
0: And for the audience to know that. And
2: for the audience to know it to make them comfortable. Mm -hmm. I think the audience now comes in. It's a different world. They have they have these characters, characters like them rather, in their living rooms nightly, in practically every movie they see, and in their family on Thanksgiving. Uh, the world's changed. Some people haven't. It's, some people are kicking and screaming all the way. Mm-hmm. But for the most part… The intelligent people in this world know that, okay, there are different kinds of people and they have different kinds of problems. And you may not want to deal with their problems or recognize them, but we all know it exists. I have to tell you, the end of our show, when the audience is there and we're out there as the cast, not as the characters, for the curtain calls... I have never felt so much support and love in my life than from that audience. They're just standing there. We, we have a passerelle, you know, that goes on the outside, sort of like Hello, Dolly, on the mm-hmm. outside mm-hmm. of the orchestra. So mm-hmm. re- it right. really puts us into the audience. Very close. Uh, it's the look on their faces is really heartwarming and wonderful. It was just the other night, guy in the front row reaches up, and he's standing there with his wife, and they're just applauding, applauding, and smiling, and the guy just reaches up and grabs Danny's hand just to really? shake it, like, really? thank you. Wow.
1: Well, it's fascinating, um, although we're pre-taping this interview, just before you, you started... Um, you were reviewing some text that you're going to read, I guess, after tonight's performance, before tonight's performance, because it's the first of the family nights on Broadway right. that the League of Theaters and Producers runs. Kids' night. and Kids' night on Broadway, exactly. So the idea, as you say, of the change in the environment of that there's an active push to have young kids you know, or teenagers coming to see material that – certainly would have been thought of as risque 21 years ago. Mm-hmm. The world has changed. I mean,
2: it has changed. But, you know, it really wasn't even risque 21 years ago. I think approaching the theater, a friend of mine is Peter Marshall, uh, Hollywood Squares, oh, Peter oh, Marshall, sure. wonderful he, he, guy who did Peter the Marshall. show. Who did the first yeah. national tour playing George? And uh, I, long before I knew I was going to do this, I was talking to Peter about the show and he said he would actually – there would be pickets out in front of the theaters when they'd go be out of town, say, in Washington, D.C. or Cleveland or whatever. And uh, don't see the homo show or something uh-huh. like that. And uh-huh. Peter would go out and say, look, you, you have to see this show first before you judge it. And they were all nice. They wanted his autograph from Hollywood Squares. <laughs> the then, they'd start, yeah, <laughs> then they'd start picketing again. And, and about 100 percent of the time, if you could talk to these people and coming in to see the show, they left having loved the evening. It's about so much more. Than sexual identity. It's about being yourself, being who you are. I am what I am, you know, and that's what it is.
0: Yeah, that title kind of says it. It does. Well, Jerry talked about how he wrote that, how he said to, uh, to Harvey, Harvey Firestein, give me five words and I will write a song that you would have to write six or seven pages of script to explain. And that, isn't that true? And he took those five words, "I am what I am," which is the big uh, closing number, I guess, for Act One. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's a number that Al Ben
2: sings. That's right. It's uh, it's actually when it's, it's sung at the very beginning of the show by the Les Cargelles, the uh, the chorus boys slash girls uh, at the club. And it's a it's a fun song. I am what I am. I am my own special creation, and the, the lyrics are fun and light, explaining about this club. Well, but at the end of the act one, it's turned around into itself, and it becomes a declaration of mm-hmm. "I am who I am." And I think now, twenty one years later, the song means even a different thing than it meant twenty one years ago. I think it became an anthem then, and now, an, a gay anthem. Now I see I see it more as a, just a personal voice that everyone has about themselves. It's okay to be who you are. It's okay.
0: Which need not be gay. It could be whatever you want it to be. Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. Yeah, so it has a more universal appeal now, I guess, than it did in 83.
2: About that, I don't know. But I do know that the audience, when I leave through the house, Uh I go out through through, uh, through the audience, out of the front of the house, and people touch you. And uh, sometimes they stand and applaud you as you go Mm -hmm. by. One of my favorites was obviously a theater party lady sitting on the row in the orchestra section and – we used to call them the blue hairs, <laughs> you know. Right. Uh, the blue hairs are now more blonde hairs. But uh, as I passed, this lady grabbed my hand and said, you go, girl. I just <laughs> 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 that was my favorite one so far. That's
0: great. She bought it. <laughs> well, on this, on this radio station, on X728, we've been playing songs from the original cast recordings. Obviously, the revival cast has not uh, been recorded yet. Not which yet. You will be, I gather, yes. I hope. But you brought with you a very short clip of a song. I guess you recorded I Am What I Am for use in a television commercial. That's right, that's right. But not the entire song, just mm-hmm. a portion. Just, of it.
2: just a bit of it, just a taste.
0: Let's play that now to hear you performing the song. Good. From LaCasha Fall. Gary Beach as Al Ban performing I Am What I Am, just a, a smidgen to get us interested in.
2: What a great song. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, the whole score, the whole Jerry Herman score is great. And. Uh, it is so Jerry Herman, which it is, is. <laughs> which is a compliment
2: yes. the way I'm saying it. From the that, downbeat of the overture, and we do have an overture. It's, it's that kind of show. Right. It's, uh, you hear Jerry Herman, you do, and uh, the original uh, orchestrator and our own Larry Blank, the new orchestrator. It's, it's all there, the trumpets, the bells and everything. The thing that we, when I was growing up in the 60s, you thought of as the musical, right. the Broadway musical, right. the David Merrick musical, Hello, Dolly, Mame.
0: Now, in preparation for the revival, did Jerry and Harvey Firestein make any uh, notable changes either to the script or the music to kind of update it, to kind of dust it off for the 21st century?
2: We definitely wanted it to be set in 2004, 2005.
0: So it's a current time.
2: Yes. So mm-hmm. therefore the clothing did not reek of the 70s or the mm-hmm. 80s or anything mm-hmm. and no shag rugs. And, uh, but basically the material, I think Harvey says this, he could have written it tomorrow. Uh, because you know the, um, the villain in the piece is the uh, uh, French uh, deputy Poli- called Deputy Dandon, a politician who is a, a, a moralistic family values, tradition sort of thing. When all of those words are exactly right but this guy has taken them to … Extremes.
0: He would be from an ultra-red state in, in that's France. That's right.
2: That's right. Sort of crimson. And so uh, he, uh, that's, that's our villain in the piece. Uh-huh. And so he, he, uh, he comes into our, our household and, and it totally goes crazy because our son, Jean-Michel, wants to marry his daughter.
0: Well, Broadway nowadays certainly um, appeals to people from all over the world, certainly all over our country. You get a lot of people coming to New York on holiday visits or whatever. Do you get any feedback from people from conservative states of our country? Oh, absolutely. And and what Uh, kind of feedback do you get? uh,
2: You know, when we leave the stage door on 45th Street, very often there are just crowds and crowds of people who just want to tell you how much they liked it. And I think that the most – the most that they can – I always ask, where are you from? Because uh-huh. that to me is always very interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's no one that's even had a raised eyebrow. I mean they, it's, it's not that kind of show. It's a show that you can walk into with your grandmother and have as good a time as you could at Mame or Hello, Dolly or any of the other great shows. It's I, a great classic musical.
0: I'm reminded and I may be paraphrasing to some extent a quote uh, by Voltaire, the French uh, philosopher of I guess 1800s uh, who said some to the effect of – I may disagree with what you have to say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. This is kind of, I guess, the same thing. I may not approve of your lifestyle, but, hey, it's your lifestyle, yeah. so you can be what you are. The interesting basically. thing
2: about these two guys, though, is that their lifestyle is your lifestyle. they It's, it's not that they live a bizarre life or existence. This is not taboo. Right. These are two people who have, frankly, middle-class values. Mm-hmm. At one point, there's a little restaurant there in Saint-Tropez that – Georges and Alban frequent quite often and they're having a discussion and at one point Georges leans over just to maybe give Alban a peck on the cheek and Alban says, George, please, we're in public view. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's – they have those values. Uh, that's, that's who they are just like most of us. And It just but, happens to be two men. That's all.
1: But it is interesting. Harvey uh, was interviewed on on a different program of the American Theater Wings uh, a couple of months ago, bef- just before you were going into rehearsal, and he did say, although he made very, very few book changes, he said that the, the change in times have allowed a few lines to change. And I'm not going to remember exactly, but and I don't remember if it's if it's yours or Danny Davis's, but uh, speaking to uh, to your son, uh, the epithets are being tossed about, and there's mm-hmm. it's traitor, villain. You heterosexual. A big that, laugh. It's a big laugh now. But but Harvey said twenty-one years ago you couldn't have done that no. line because it would have frozen the house. And yes. so there is exactly. a flexibility. But to segue from this, your last big Broadway appearance also had you wearing a dress. I know. Do you do you uh, do you know why this link is coming? Is this suddenly
2: now people saying Oh, he was
1: very good in the producers' and <laughs> dress. Let's put him in another you know, dress. At first,
2: you want to be on, I'll be honest with you. When I first got the call, which was well over a year ago, um, I I thought they would be, I would it would be for George for some reason. And uh, then when I heard it was Alban, at first I thought, oh gee, a dress. Uh, and then I read the script. And in talking to Jerry Zaks, our director, not long mm-hmm. after that, I said, Jerry, when I saw it originally, I remember I thought it was very funny. But I didn't remember it being so moving and touching. Mm-hmm. And he said, maybe it's because you're older. <laughs> and I think that may she have a lot to yeah. do with it. But also I believe it's because we're looking at it through different eyes now. Mm-hmm. It's uh, – you don't have to be funny. There are lines that I have that I'm sure George Hearn probably had to put a comic spin on. I can say absolutely, totally real. Mm. To uh, to my friend, to my mate, to George. Mm-hmm. And uh, it doesn't it doesn't move a leaf. The house sees nothing bad about it or dangerous.
1: And couture aside, uh-huh. <laughs> Roger Debris was a wonderful character, but there weren't the
2: emotional depths to plumb you know, in the real way. I always took Roger Debris at his word. He, he says I'm going to a costume party, mm-hmm. to the uh, choreographer's ball to be exact. And uh, then I have the, one of the great lines in the show. I look like the Chrysler building <laughs> <laughs> and I do. And um, so it, it's, it's a totally different thing. The band lives – is one of the sweetest men in the world – Roger Debris was a madman.
0: Well, and, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that in the case of Alban, he believes that he is really a woman yes. and really a mother, whereas yes. Roger Debris didn't pretend for one minute to be a woman. No. He was gay and he was going to a costume party and he was wearing a dress. That yeah. was, I'm not even that was sure com- he would say
2: he was gay. Uh-huh. It was 1959 when, when, <laughs> when the play was said If you, if you recall, mm-hmm. Carmen Ghia, upon introducing himself to Max and Leo, calls himself Mr. Debris' common law assistant. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know... It's Mel Brooks. Right? But it's right. worth noting that
1: you're playing this iconic musical comedy figure, mm-hmm. you know, the character of Alban right now. But at the same time, Roger Debris lives on in your life. Yes. And you're gonna in some period you're gonna be Roger Debris during the day and, and Alban at night. Can you tell us what's happening? I'm so excited. The film I'm so producers? excited. Yeah.
2: To be able to do you know, friends of mine said, how can you do both? my answer is how can I not? Mm-hmm. It's it's like a gift. Uh, this is done quite often in London, by the way, because the movie studios are much closer than, say, Hollywood.
1: Right. It's worth noting that the producers is going to be
2: filmed in new studios in Brooklyn. Exactly. In the first major. I mean, how lucky is that? There. Yeah. That that was a, that, that allowed me to do both projects. Uh, there was some problem there at first. We thought, oh no, not Canada, you know. Mm-hmm. But but then uh, the city came through with some breaks. And uh, I think bent over backwards a bit to make sure that the producers, which is New York. It's so New York. Sure. It has to be done here. You have to have New York faces right. and places and attitudes and accents. And so I, I think it was important that it be done here. Will
0: there be any location shooting or is it strictly in yes, the studio? As a matter
2: of fact, um, um, the Roger DeBris townhouse. Uh, they founded the Upper East Side Townhouse, as they really? say, is an Upper East Side Townhouse. Uh, I believe it's uh, in the East 80s somewhere. Now, did they need to redecorate it or did they find one already well suited <laughs> to the character? Yeah, I'm not going to answer that. No, I don't know. Uh, but the main thing they needed, if you recall in the play, they needed a staircase for uh-huh. Roger Debris to make a uh, an appearance right. in. And they also need technically enough room to have all of those people in the living room doing a conga mm-hmm. line and a camera crew. So they sure. finally found a place large enough for that. So we're doing it on location. So it's location. interesting
0: that they're not building a set. I thought that when you were saying uh, an Upper East Side townhouse, maybe they were shooting exteriors of the townhouse and then building a set. In no, we're but doing it doing in doing the that.
2: house. Now, hmm. on the other hand, uh, Susan Stroman, uh, who is one of my favorite people in the world.
0: And who directed and choreographed the Broadway show.
2: As well as the movie now. Uh, she uh, was in rehearsal the other day, and she was telling me, she said, Gary, you will weep when you see the sets for the film. She said, uh, they have recreated a 1959 West 44th Street, Schubert Alley. And she said, you just, you stand there and you look around and it's, you're in Schubert Alley, mm-hmm. so we'll be we'll be filming like uh, I don't know how much you remember the movie, uh, the play rather, but we have a song called uh, "It's Bad Luck to Say Good Luck on Opening Night," right. and that in the play is done in Schubert Alley, and we're going to be doing it in the Schubert Alley and at Steiner Studios out in Brooklyn. It's going to be just so much fun.
0: Which gives you a lot more control when you're shooting than Absolutely. to do it in the real Schubert Absolutely. Alley, whether in all tourists and whatever. That's right.
2: Yeah, well, yeah.
1: So where are you in – it's still pre-production. You commented that you're, you're already beginning to rehearse the we're film. We're rehearsing, yeah. yeah. I
2: rehearsed um, Prisoners of Love with the beautiful Uma Thurman just four days ago. Mm. She's uh, just beautiful. And uh, there she is in all her glory without a bit of makeup or anything and you just can't take your eyes off her. She's stunning. Mm. And yeah. So we're deep in rehearsal already. And – there's a good
0: deal of the regular, original Broadway cast in Nathan Lane and Roger and uh, Matthew Broderick, certainly. Roger Bart is in it. Well, well in The it. four of us are actually
2: yeah. the, four the four principals that are coming from the Broadway version. And we've got Will Ferrell uh-huh. playing uh, Franz Liebkin, the uh, crazy playwright. And uh, like I say, Uma Thurman is Ula, the secretary. Mm-hmm. And the, the wonderful thing they've done is they've taken so many of the people in the show and have given them parts throughout the movie. Uh, It Being a movie, you can't have one person playing seven roles like you can on Broadway. But I think that's an important thing to keep the the spirit of the original up there because, you know, if you saw this thing three years ago, this thing, this producers, you know it was – they used the word phenomena and it was. Well,
1: that's what I need to ask you. It was one of those great rides for anybody mm-hmm. to be associated with that show. I had the good fortune to see the ver- the third preview in Chicago. Oh, and well. Already the show was you know extraordinary. There was the drama, of course, yeah. of what had happened with with uh, Ron Orbach and and uh, Brad. Brad Oscar going in, and that was the whole thing. But at what point did you know that this thing was? Truly the event it became because it, it seemed like such a juggernaut as it built. And people forget the movie was not a smash hit no. movie originally. It was a cult. You know, Mel Brooks had not had hit movies recently. Certainly nobody knew the guy could write music right. uh, unless they were aware of the songs he'd written for exactly. his earlier movies. But <laughs> not a whole Broadway mm-hmm. score. How did What was the feeling around that show?
2: I tell you, the first time that I sort of realized that, oh, my gosh. This may sound ridiculous, but I think you'll know what I mean. I was living in Los Angeles just prior to the producers, had decided to move back here, sold everything out there, drove my car and dogs and everything back <laughs> east. I was renting a house in Long Island City because I had the car and the dogs and, and everything. So you know, I didn't want to move right back into Manhattan yet. And uh, I was having a satellite installed. And this guy, burly sort of guy, comes there. He's doing that. And uh, he says uh, – he asked the typical question that New Yorkers ask someone from California. So why are you leaving California to come here? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm going to be doing a Broadway show. Well, you know what I'm saying? That uh, most of the time the guy putting the satellite dish doesn't say which show.
1: <laughs> you know. So did he? Well, you're <laughs> making
2: some assumptions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> huge assumptions. I mean th- this is the guy bending over the pants. Halfway right, down his right, right, back, right? right? And uh, I said, I'm doing a, a new show called The Producers. He said, oh, I've already got tickets. Really? I said, really? He said, yeah, I can't wait to see it.
0: It was, it was pre-sold, totally. basically. Yeah.
2: And then all of a sudden, the American Express ad, the full-page ad, came out uh, and – I think the tickets went like that. Mm. And the second one came out. They went like that. Okay, we come back from Chicago. And we knew that we had pretty much taken Chicago by storm. But Chicago's a big town. We only played for three weeks. So, you know, that's – what does that really tell
0: us? To, to sell out for three weeks is not a year's run.
2: That's right. Yeah. So we come back. And Roger Bard and I are buddies. And uh, so we're, we leave rehearsal one day. They tell us to go over to the theater and decide which um, dressing rooms we – wanted. It was a contractual thing. And so (laughs) during the lunch break, we went over to the theater. Now, believe it or not, we had not been by the theater, of course, since coming back from Chicago. We turned the corner going west on 44th Street and we see a line going outside of the St. James. Now, we're not even in previews yet. Mm. Going outside of the St. James and down to Sardi's. Well, I I don't have to tell you guys, theater ticket lines are sort of a thing of the past. You'd Everybody hardly, buys on it, the right. phone or exactly. online. Exactly, right. and that line didn't go away for almost eight months.
0: And that's pretty much the whole block from well, the St. James to Charlie's. When a pretty, pretty good Nathan, distance.
2: Yeah, when they announced that Nathan and Matthew were coming back on that Sunday morning, the tickets went on sale. I show up at the theater for the Madonnay. The t- the line went. If you if you know New York Manhattan geography, right. it went from basically Eighth Avenue west to Broadway, down Broadway, and then back up Forty Third Street. That's ridiculous, Mm -hmm. you know? So so you'd really come a long way from, let's say, Something's Afoot and the
1: Mooney Shapiro songbook. Hello. I want to jump back and talk about (laughs) some of those earlier shows that you did because certainly in the past ten years, anybody who's a great Broadway fan knows, you know, these these major roles you're playing. But but those were some early ones. Tell us about about those
2: couple of shows. I think Something's Afoot was one of the most fun shows I ever did. Uh, Do you know anything about it?
1: I actually do, but I doubt
2: many of our listeners do. uh, Yeah, it's very Successful in stock, even now. It's a murder mystery musical. Uh, It's basically a musical Agatha Christie, Christie, who done it Indian, exactly. And one by one, the cast disappears. Uh. I made it into the second act, (laughs) (laughs) but it was uh, good for you. Yes, uh, the uh, the dissolute nephew of the of the uh, of the the topic of the the evening. Nigel Ranker was my name. It was so much fun. I've this show would get standing ovations in the middle of the show. Tessie O'Shea was our Miss Tweed. We Miss Marple, who was a great type. British music hall performer, right. not with, well known over here. With the banjo and the whole thing, and uh, there were nine of us, and uh, the audience would go crazy. And this this was in the seventies, when uh, I mean, newspaper critics still hold a great deal of weight in in New York, but I think far less than they did then. Then it was it was rough, and. Uh, Mr. Barnes wrote for the New York Times at the time. Clive Barnes. That's right. And he um, – his review I will never forget. The audience adored the show, but they were misled. And it was like, <laughs> what? So – Did he explain himself? Yeah, He went on to, but I didn't bother. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a strange thing. that Critics did carry a big, big stick back in those days if you recall. You know, they still do, but it's a different world we live in, you know.
0: But there are so many shows that have been panned by critics, audiences just love. It. Well, that's just And it. vice versa.
2: Yeah. You know, a friend of mine gave me a wonderful booklet uh, made up of reviews from um, most of the great musicals uh-huh. over the last 75 years. It's so much fun to read a review of South Pacific opening night by Brooks Atkinson, mm-hmm. I think who's one of the deans of theater criticism, right? He's, he's really well-known. Uh, he was talking about Mary Martin, and he said, "Well, frankly, she's a little. There's a little too much Annie Oakley up there for my. You know, it's, it's like this is Mary Martin in South
1: Pacific. How can you be negative? Well, there's the famous out of town review of Oklahoma, right. New Haven. No girls, no gags, no chance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's certainly there. So, so you from something to foot, you were a replacement in Annie.
2: That's right. That and I did that for a long time, and I absolutely loved it. I just which, loved which, that show. Which role? Rooster Hannigan. Uh-huh. I I had the. Uh, One of the events of that whole thing was for Alice Ghostly, who was brilliant playing Miss Hannigan. She replaced Dorothy Loudon. Um, Alice took one of the three-week vacation. And so they they gave it to her, but they wanted to get sort of a celebrity to replace her, to get a little news. And so they – boy, they called a rectory up up in Provincetown, Rhode Island, where this ex-movie star was working, waiting on priests and monks. Her name was Betty Hutton. Mm. And so they called – and I swear to you, the, the casting director found her somehow or other, called and said, we were interested in you replacing in Annie on Broadway. And she said, why would I want to do that? I already did the movie. She thought he was talking about oh, Annie getting Your get Gun. Annie Your Gun, right, oh. right. Yeah, oh, wow. Out of touch. <laughs> and so uh, she – one day – It was a matinee day, a Sunday. I was standing – I smoked in those days and I was outside of the theater of the – it was called the Alvin then. It's now the Neil Simon Mm -hmm. uh, having a cigarette, watching the audience come in and this white uh, town car pulls up and out gets a very recognizable face to me because I've always been a movie fan. Mm -hmm. And I realized, oh my gosh, that's Betty Hutton and I put one and one together. So uh, this is what I did. you love this. I knew that she was auditioning the very next day. She's coming Monday. to see the show. Right. Mm-hmm. So I went to the back of the Neil Simon, th- for me, the Alvin Theater, up in the balcony and sat there in the dark to watch these auditions. They had three other well-known actresses there. Uh-huh. Betty was the one that everybody was hoping would do well. And um, it was a thrill. She said, uh, she said, I sort of know the song if you'd like me to sing it, Little Girls. And so she sang it, and it was so Betty Hutt and all of that sort of 40s, mm-hmm. 50s, ah, 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 ah uh, right. you know, that jazzy sort of stuff. Right. And uh, then she said, well, I, I can sing some of my stuff if you'd like to hear it. And, of course, Martin Charnin, a big fan, just like all of us, he said, <laughs> sure. oh, I'd love to hear it. What would you like to sing? She says, how about You Can't Get a Man with a Gun? He said, oh, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> and she just knocked it out, and, of course, they hired her. And we went into rehearsal for three weeks with Peter Gennaro teaching her Easy Street, and it was just – a wonderful experience and okay for th- musical theater buffs does anyone have an inkling who was playing Lily St. Regis when Betty Hutton was playing Miss Hannigan I was playing Rooster Hannigan you'll be very surprised
1: unfortunately our listeners can't buzz in mm-hmm. and I don't, I don't know, I don't know. Rita Rudner show. no we don't
2: Rita Rudner yeah really? Rita huh. Rudner and it was just before she was she was just going into stand up she would play Annie at night go down to uh, Bud Friedman's uh, place down on 44th Street Rising Star? Uh, no uh, oh, which one what was it called I can't remember. Yeah, the improv. Improv. And uh, be there till 4 o'clock in the morning trying out our material.
1: So for for the Playbill collectors out there who may have saved their Annie Playbill, Mm -hmm. they could actually find a show in which you, Betty Hutton, and Rita Rudner were performing on stage (laughs) together.
0: Boy, who'd have thought it? Now you mentioned a moment ago that you were standing outside the theater watching the audience come in. Mm-hmm. Is that a common thing for actors to do well, when you're in a show to stand yeah, outside? Rooster kind of wasn't peak. on for
2: the first hour, uh-huh. so and you had so plenty of time. I had plenty of time. Yeah. And uh, but no, it isn't. It, it isn't common. You know, in the summertime, it is fun to if you walk around before your your curtain or something. And if you know who these who actors are, you know what mm-hmm. they look like. You very very possibly might see someone you know quite well standing there talking to the stagehands before they go in.
1: Well, as I say, it's usually the stagehands stage hanging out know, hang by right, the yes. back door, not unlike in the scenes in Kiss Me
2: Kate. Exactly, but you know, the Broadway community is so wonderful, and in a like in the summertime when uh, people it, do go out into the streets, you really feel the closeness of of the whole thing. Or when you go to like the Broadway Flea Market or Broadway Barks or any of these things, you know, mm-hmm. you, you really feel this sense of community. That's incredible.
0: Now, when you were growing up, Virginia, I think you said that's it? right. You went to school in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Did you know you wanted to act, or did that's that come all way? I wanted to
2: do ever. Ever never wanted yeah. to do anything else. And isn't this funny? I never thought of television. I. Uh, I, it never occurred to me to do television. And then when I moved out there to try to do television, I realized why. <laughs> it, it, it was uh, not my field. Uh, even the three-camera sort of situation comedy, I just didn't feel like I was at home in it.
0: But you've done quite a bit of television, yeah. guest mm-hmm. roles, that sort mm-hmm. of thing.
2: Yes, quite a bit. And uh, I look forward to doing some more sometime. But it's, I always knew, even as a kid, that uh, I wanted to be on Broadway. and uh, Live theater. Live theater. Is that
0: because the audience is there? Is that because it's a different dynamic?
2: It's because of all of that and so much more. Um, When we walk out of the stage door after a show and someone grabs your hand and says thank you, Mm -hmm. that means a lot. You know, and uh, – it's of course the autographs and all that. That's fun too. But then the the, the dialogue that you get with an audience. Where did you Where are you from? And uh, you get letters from people that say you were so nice. You talked to me, and they. Uh, it's it's a different thing. The orchestra is incredible. To to stand backstage and hear that orchestra, either hit Springtime for Hitler or the best of times now. Mm-hmm. LeCage in this Jerry Herman score. It's a it's a feast for someone like myself who grew up. This is all I ever wanted to do, and now I've, and totally, is just steeped in it. And I love it. I love it.
0: So, is this uh, like an every night occurrence when you come out the stage door of the Marriott Marquis? Yet you, you you actually talk to the audience?
2: Is yeah, that- not last week during the blizzard. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of audience showed up, but they went home right after. Yeah, we the were show. talking
0: about the blizzard just before we went on mm-hmm. the air. Tell us a little bit about your experience. During the blizzard, doing, oh, the, doing the show. Yeah, the show right. went on. Yes, the show...
1: For those not in New York, we mm-hmm. should point out that there was this major storm. It was the first big storm of the year. It began at noontime on a Saturday, and by the time it was an 8 o'clock curtain, well, the city was blanketed mm-hmm. with snow. But it was also a Saturday matinee. Yeah, yeah. and about. the
2: matinee was well attended. They always are, you know, for us. And and uh, But then you start thinking, you look out the window and you think, oh, my goodness, 8 inches of snow out there. What kind of an audience are we going to have tonight? We had... 1,500 people on a blizzard Saturday night. That's incredible. And they were wildly enthusiastic. And I think to venture that guess that mm-hmm. it's probably because they were New Yorkers, Manhattanites, that uh, you hop on the subway, you go. You, right. you go to the theater, you get a ticket. Because
0: tickets suddenly became available. Tot- the yeah. Or, yeah, right,
2: it's great. Right, yeah. And it was, it was what we thought was going to be sort of maybe a – uh, a dull night ended up to be just an exciting evening and yelling and screaming. And Well, there's you know. also so, that
1: experience of people – they really made the effort to be there. That's right. You. It was more than we're just going to a show. They were they were braving the elements mm-hmm. and so you were all in it together. And, yeah. and then what did that do for you and the rest of the cast? Oh, I, well, it was – It energized you guys? Oh,
2: it goosed you up. It really did. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I, one of the most incredible evenings I ever spent – and the theater was uh 913 in uh 2001 because you know the theater's closed everything closed and uh,
0: 911 they closed for two nights i guess right?
2: yeah uh and then we were all at home not knowing you know our world had been rocked and sitting there as an actor uh, in musicals you felt uh, i hope this sounds right uh, you felt rather insignificant mhm um, then Thursday, we got a call that afternoon. The show's going on tonight. Mayor Giuliani has asked. He called Rocco Landisman, one of our producers. Can you get the show up tonight? Yes, we can. Okay, let's do the show tonight. So I, like I say, I was living in Long Island City. I took the subway in and uh, I got out underneath the Palace Theater there at 47th Street. And I came up and what was usually hustling, bustling, Duffy Square, half-price booth, tumbleweed. There was no one in sight, no one. I crossed Duffy Square, over, looked down Forty Fifth Street, Forty Sixth Street rather. Nothing. Forty Fifth Street, a few things, a couple of people. Schubert Alley, empty. And I'm thinking, oh, this is awful. This is awful. I walked uh, south on Schubert Alley, turned the corner onto Forty Fourth Street, and there were hundreds of people standing in front of the St. James. Hundreds, because tickets were available. That night, anyone who was in town who could be there, on, by the, anyone I mean on our staff or producers or whatever, uh, you were drawn to the theater that night to be a part of whatever it was going to be, that event. The show started and by the time um, we got to springtime for Hitler, it all of a sudden became a different thing. Mm-hmm. It really did. It, wa- it wasn't just funny. It was uh, – the laughter was maniacal. It was. It was. It was. We can laugh. Damn mm-hmm. it, we can laugh. You know. And at the end, of course, it's a pretty famous picture of all of us singing "God Bless America." Mm-hmm. At the end, oh my gosh, I, that that experience was one of the most incredible. It only happens in live theater. Yeah. People didn't go down, gather down at the cinema, you know, or gather around their TVs except to watch the tragedy. They came to that theater that night, and for weeks afterwards, they came there to laugh. Right.
0: This, this company, XM Satellite Radio, was supposed to have done our launch of our service the day after nine eleven. 11 nine twelve, was our announced national launch. We postponed that for two weeks. But in the July and August months leading up to the launch, we were doing dry runs. where mm-hmm. We had to be on there for about 100 t- beta testers, as they were called right. people who would listen and comment on it. And I didn't much feel like going on the radio and Mm -hmm. saying, now here's Frank Sinatra. I was working on a different, different channel back then. I wasn't much in the mood. But then I started getting feedback from these couple of people. Maybe a hundred people who were listening all together, mm-hmm. had the first units. And it was kind of like, yeah, we have to get back to normal. So walking to the theater the night of 913 must have been very um, strange for you having to do a show and put on this character and be this flamboyant person. It and
2: all did. That. It did at first. But then you realized, tying back to what I was talking about earlier about insignificant, at that moment – we were very significant. Uh-huh. We, uh, we let people not just – it wasn't like you know that overused phrase, if we do that, then that means they've won. Mm-hmm. You remember that right. all the time right. for right. everything. It, right. it, it got to be a little hackneyed. Right. But it was true at that moment. It was totally true. And uh, I'll never forget it. it mm-hmm. it's, it's something that just burned in my mind of, of that evening and being backstage and listening to that audience. And – being like a horse race, you know, a, a, rather a racehorse, uh, all of us not, can't wait to get out there. Roger Barton and I were like two children. We really? couldn't really? wait really? to get out there because right. the audience desperately wanted to, wanted to laugh. They wanted to hear it. And, you know, the show was still very, very hot at that time. Sure. So, it uh, hot. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it, 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 it did away with my feeling of insignificance and it made me realize, no, live theater is – it is our culture. It is us. It is – it's what we do that is so important.
0: Well, changing the mood on mm-hmm. the producers, um, any wonderful backstage moments, funny moments, strange things that happened, gaffes in the show, things like that. You know, that you not really because
2: really? – yeah, Really funny things happened on stage so that
0: uh-huh. <laughs> we didn't have to have them happen backstage. <laughs> what, what, what funny things happened to you on stage that, that, um, that, that were not planned? Oh, not that's scripted. just what
2: I mean. You know, it's like when you do a Susan Stroman show uh-huh. and when you're out there with Nathan and Matthew and Roger and all these – Katie and all these wonderful people. There's a very little experimentation, but there is a lot of living in the moment. Mm-hmm. And so uh I know it's it's so disappointing not to have a funny story and then and then I fell, you know. <laughs> I guess no, I guess there is one. This is funny. I forgot about this. If you remember in the movie, Adolf Hitler gets a tremendous entrance. He's standing there uh, doing the Heil Hitler and he's on an elevator he comes up and gets in what we call the bullseye in the back of the stage mm-hmm. and all the ensemble facing, giving the Heil Hitler. Believe it or not, folks, this is funny when you see it on stage. <laughs> and uh, one night, I'm standing there. The music for the entrance starts, and I'm just standing there. Nothing's moving. And I look up at the stage manager, Ira Mont, and he looks at me and he jumps down into the elevator with me, and he... He holds his hands and he says, here, let me give you a leg up.
0: <laughs> you're supposed to be rising up. I Adam. said, this
2: is a $10 million musical and you're giving <laughs> me a leg up? <laughs> so this is what hap- The ensemble, of course, does not know any right, of this right, is happening. Right. They're looking at the bullseye and they're, oh, where's Gary. All of a sudden, they see my hand come over as it is <laughs> climb out it's of the like trench. It's like Lucille Ball getting into the show with Ricky. Right, it's like right. I'm climbing leg by leg over. And, of course, the audience is laughing, but they don't know that it's really funny. that's not what really happens, folks. Right. And, of course, the ensemble was beside themselves. It was so ridiculous. Looking. But
0: it must have been a funny moment. It certainly, with the audience not knowing, it must have made it very
2: funny. Exactly. They, they, I love that part that they didn't know that – that's not what usually happened, and they right. found it tremendously funny. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, you did one song in that the producers, which really is a standout, "Keep It Gay." Yes. Uh, how did you get into into doing that? You know, in other words, finding what to do, the, the movements, whatever.
2: Here's the funny thing about that scene: I, uh, Nathan, and uh, Katie Huffman, Who myself. Ula. Yes, that's right. Did did the original reading of uh-huh. this a year before we opened on Broadway, and. Uh, the wonderful Mario Cantone played uh, Carmen Gale, but he couldn't work it out. To, to, so we got the great Roger Bart. Uh, but that scene, we, I called it the gay scene. Everyone else <laughs> called it the townhouse scene. But uh, basically, stayed exactly the same. It never really changed. It was perfect. Hmm. It was funny. It was just enough. One thing they did find out that when we got to Chicago, that anything alluding to anything gay had to be cut. It only had to be in that scene, you know that it like that scene went so far that anything uh-huh. more was like okay that's too much. Oh. But uh, oh, yeah. I, I agree. I think I think that uh, we just found it, and I how we went about it, I really don't know. We just played the truth of it. That's all the producers is about, though, isn't it? It's about people who want to put on a show. Every single one of us want to put on a show, and uh, I think that appeals to a lot of people on many levels.
0: Well. Know i like to I like to play the cut now okay. this is the scene where where Max and Leo come to the apartment that's
2: right and uh and they want they need to they want to get the worst director in theater to direct what they think is their sure flyer sure fire flop springtime for Hitler so Roger debris is the worst director in theater which is your character, which is my character and so uh leo and uh max that's uh Matthew and Nathan come and they meet um First, they meet uh, Carmen Gia, my common law assistant, and then they meet Roger Debris, who happens to be on his way to the uh, choreographer's ball. So he's wearing a $16,000 evening gown <laughs> that when he stands in exactly the right way does make him look like the Chrysler building. <laughs> and uh, the funny thing about it is he, he's wearing this gown, but as he starts creating and he's working on his feet, I could do this, I could do that, he practically turns into a cowboy. So you've got this man wandering around the stage with his dress hyped up <laughs> and uh, living each moment of springtime for Hitler. From the original production of the producers, the Broadway
0: production, not the movie, of course, that uh, that was Gary Beach as Roger Debris along with um, Roger Bart mm-hmm. as, uh, as the what, common law assistant. The common assistant? law, assist- common law Carmen assistant, Carmen Gia <laughs> Carmen Gia, And that uh, we've seen Roger most recently on television in Desperate Housewives. Isn't he great? And, and recently in The Frogs uh, at Lincoln Center. And Stepford Wives. And Stepford Wives, him. the movie this past summer. Yeah. Uh, Terrific. Absolutely terrific. Um, And I I, I do want to add before, Howard, that uh, performance for you when you were Tony as best
2: supporting actor, best featured actor in a musical. Changed my life. The whole – the show changed my life.
1: Before we wrap up, Gary, you know, we've been talking about – you've been talking about speaking to audience and the effect on audiences and – people at the at the doors and of course we we haven't mentioned another one of your major major performances namely Lumiere in Beauty and the Beast which was already this beloved much you know much known piece. Unlike the producers, which mm-hmm. was really obscure to a lot of people. You know, you had people coming in from Beauty and the Beast, which was such smash hit as a film and then coming to it on stage. And of course you were playing for what probably compared certainly not since Annie were you probably seeing as many kids in the house That's of right. shows that you'd done. And just wanted to ask about the evolution of taking that
2: iconic film to to the stage. It was handled, I think, at At the time, it was handled exactly right by Disney, by the Disney people, by Rob Roth, a director. The idea was not to play cartoons, but to play because they came up with the conceit that these – the candlestick, the clock, the pot, all of them were people that were because of this enchantment were turning into little by little as the play went on into inanimate objects, which raised the stakes quite a bit. And then we had a, a new song introduced called Human Again which made us even more human, I think. I have to say that uh, a lot of ruckus was caused by the theater community when Beauty and the Beast first came to town. Uh, And about a year and a half later, uh, I think it was Frank Rich, uh, wrote a uh, very interesting and I really liked his uh, op-ed about – he said, isn't, isn't it funny that perhaps the show that we thought was going to kill the street may be the show that saves the street? By that, uh, by that he meant that it, it was bringing in a different kind of audience, a larger audience. And then Disney's um, 42nd Street experience there with uh, changing it. I mean I'm old enough to remember 42nd Street. The way it was. The way it was. Yeah. And uh, it –
1: well, it's been many things. We're referring to the
2: tawdry yes, mid-70s, for Exactly, exactly. you know. And so and, and whatever you may think of uh, the presence of Disney, it is a pleasure to walk around after a Broadway show now and see people, families. Times Square is packed with people. When I first started doing Broadway shows in the early 70s, uh, they changed the curtain time from 8 o'clock to 7.30 because they thought maybe people would like come in earlier if they thought they were going to get home earlier. There were buses at Duffy Square. If you were going to see an off-Broadway show, you could get on the bus and take the bus downtown Mm. and then get off the bus, watch the show, get back on the bus, and they take you back. It was dangerous. And now the sense of family, it's really incredible. And, uh, you know, now I think we have to fight against not everything has to be for the family. You know, there are shows for adults too. And uh, so, yeah. You know, but well, it's, it's a great thing.
0: I, I, I can recall working at a television station, which was located in Times Square in the late 60s, early 70s, right. where on the night crew, we were afraid to go out alone to eat dinner. And three or four guys who go out as a group we were afraid as individuals to get mugged in Times Square. And now, as you say, it is so, so different.
2: Uh, times just, have changed. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm a huge fan of, uh, of where the theater is right now, but it is nice to think that we have shows for practically everybody's taste. It's, uh, it's Broadway has grown in a in a pretty good direction, I think.
0: Well, we know that every day, eight days a week, except Mondays. I guess you're yeah. off on Mondays. Uh, you're playing in um, in La Cage aux Folles, Alban happily, and you're about to start shooting the Roger Debris role again in The Producer. Mm-hmm. What would you like to do in the future? What what areas do you want to get into that you may not have done, or where would you like to go career wise in the um, future?
2: I'm so happy right now. I think to wish for more right now would be like <laughs> slap him in the uh-huh. face, somebody. But uh, I, I really – I love Broadway musicals. I do. I, it's, and I'd like to – this is the first revival I've ever done, uh-huh. which is a whole different thing. I never thought about it. Uh, the night we opened, I, I arrived at the theater and there was an envelope uh, and I opened. It was a beautiful, beautiful letter from George Hearn. Mm. Uh, And it made me realize – not that I didn't before that, but it really made me realize the responsibility you have when you do one of these beloved shows on Broadway and uh, to present it to a new audience or to an audience that's not new but remembers it with such fondness. In my dressing room, I have hanging the original poster – and our poster, mm-hmm. because I want any. I have a lot of friends who are in the original. When they come back, I want them to know that this is. If they weren't so wonderful, we wouldn't be here tonight. Mm-hmm. You know that it's because they were great. We get to do this show right now. It's great. Eight times a week at the Marquee Theater. That's right, Marriott Marquee. It's a theater that's. I had never. I'd been there a couple of times, but they totally remodeled it for us. It's all new seating and rugs, and it's carpeting. It's beautiful. And I can honestly say there's not a bad seat in the house. That's true. They're all wonderful. And the, the sound system is great. It's, uh, I'm so happy being there. And I do have one of the biggest dressing rooms I've ever seen in my life. I don't know who they That's built really it for. That's really what it comes down yes, to. Yes, it does. <laughs> I, think they, I think they built it for Julie Andrews or something. But it really is just incredible i invite my friends you have to come and see the dressing room and,
0: oh, okay well I- interestingly julie andrews was there in victor victoria's so right. recall which was also a similar theme
2: you're right you're right is there yeah. something
0: about the Marquee theater
2: i hope so <laughs> <laughs> we're we're loving it we really are and it's a, it's a it's a great it's a great show and a great message that the show has of just a, a positive life it's it's wonderful and you get to sing some really great jerry herman songs you feel in a good mood when you leave you totally do, and the audience really does. That's what I mean. Yeah, the audience. I'm speaking mm-hmm. as an audience member. Okay, right? yeah, that's right. And yeah. you too. I hope. Yes. A good mood. Yes, I love to walk out that stage door and have someone grab your hand and say, "Thank you." Gosh, that was good. You know, it was really wonderful.
0: Well, I will say thank you on behalf
1: of Downstage Center Gary Beach for joining us today.
2: Thank you, thank you, guys.
1: For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding everyone that these programs, as well as all of the educational and media programs of the American Theatre Wing, are available online as free, on-demand streaming audio and video from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center.
0: That's a wrap, and thank you. Bonsoir.